All right. Welcome, Disability Law Show. So good to have you with us on the show again this week. John Scholes here and with me again, Tamara Gopian, Sam Firu, Tamarkin LLP. That's where Tamara does all her great work with her team. You can reach out to them anytime for a uh, private lengthier consultation or at least a a chat anyway we'll start there 1-855-821-5900 help at disabilityrights.ca and i'll give you some more uh websites throughout the show you can write down and uh, go over to anytime you'd like but we always start off with uh, a week that was uh tomorrow and then we'll get into some emails and some other questions as well so uh, what do you got for us my friend Sounds good. Yes. A couple of things. I, when I think about these shows, John, I always try and think about, you know, what kind of information can I provide people out there that will help them in their disability claims? You know, are there themes or topics? And and of course, certain topics to come up, you know, week after week, and I'm happy to talk about those. But there was a couple of conversations that I've had in the last few weeks, um, some with consults, uh, some with lawyers that seem to bring up one theme that I, we don't really talk too much about on the show that I thought I would start off uh, our dialogue on today, which is, you know, something related to essentially credibility. But why do I talk about that? So in other words, how reliable is what an individual's account is about their disability claim and how insurers will look at certain types of claims in a certain way? Um, and frankly, with a fairly high degree of cynicism. And so a lot of the work that we do has a very strong subjective component. In other words, you know, things like chronic pain and mental health and fibromyalgia and these, you know, disabling health conditions are largely self-reported. And we talk a lot about how they're absolutely compensable. You should absolutely be getting disability benefits for these types of claims if your doctor or doctors are supporting that you're not capable of working as a result of these conditions. But because they have a subjective component, insurers as well have tried to grapple with, well, look, how do we test the reality or the truth or, you know, how how legitimate, I suppose, is the claim? And sometimes those inquiries are frankly not quite right, John. So they put in a standard of, look, we're looking for firm confirmation that this is the case and this person can never work. And that is the only basis that we will provide benefits. That is not what the courts have said at all whatsoever. So one of the strategies that insurers like to use, and I think that this trickles down even at the level of the adjusters, is to question someone's truthfulness, to question how legitimate it is that their presentation to their doctors or the insurance company is true. And that is an inquiry around credibility. And so I struggle with this because I I often don't think it's a fair criticism of most disability claimants. But look, disability insurers are going to find ways to deny claims, and this is one of the ways they do it. And so I cannot emphasize this enough to those listening that, look, it is a absolute legitimate claim. You should not be getting resistance from the insurance company. If you are, you have rights, okay? But I want one of the key takeaways as well to be look, you should have open and honest dialogue with your doctors and your adjuster. Yes, they cherry pick. Yes, they can sort of say, hey, how are you? I'm good. Oh, okay. So you're not disabled, right? We've talked about that extreme example. And it's not always the case at all, John. But I think that where it becomes problematic for people is if they are not being true about their level of function and still having a disabling condition. Because let me give an example of of a situation that I came across a couple of weeks ago. A woman had been on disability for a number of years. 
and she was caught out on surveillance. And this isn't often something that's uh, being used by insurance company, but it's certainly one of these tools that ties into what I'm talking about with credibility. And so they put eyes on her. And at the same time, they asked her to report what her level of activity was. And there was a, a big disconnect. It's, it's not often the case, but in, in her particular situation, there was a big disconnect between what she had reported to the insurers to what she was doing and what they actually saw her doing in surveillance. And so, you know, it's a very rare instance, but, you know, she's sort of uh, talking this through with us and saying, look, do I have options here? And yeah, she absolutely does have options. But when it becomes that difficult to overcome, those those options become very narrowed, right? And so it can be very, very difficult to per- persuade a disability insurer that you are legitimate from what you're reporting when they sort of see this kind of disconnect. And I much prefer not to have people have any of these kinds of questions lobbed at them, either directly or indirectly by the insurance company when they otherwise have legitimate disability claims. Because you know what this woman described to me, John? She was afraid. She was actually afraid that her benefits would have been cut off if she was more honest with the disability insurer. And I absolutely understand that fear. I really, really do get it. I sympathize with people about it because this can be a really daunting process. How do you deal with disability insurers? What do you do? But I think that if it's that critical, when the insurers are very focused on your function, then it that disconnect can be very fatal to a disability claim and even actually mm. legitimately advancing a claim. And so I don't want people to take away from this thinking they don't have options and that this is them that they don't have options. No, that's not what I'm saying at all whatsoever. It's just, it's an important function of the types of disability claims that insurers will resist and the things that they will do to try and undermine what is otherwise a legitimate claim. This is an insurance company problem. This is not a claimant problem. So when people are trying to deal with their insurers, as long as they're open and honest with what they are able to do and not do, they want to focus on what you can do, John. Focus them on what you can't do. Um, then I think that if they make the poor choices around you know, making it all a credibility issue or perhaps you know, not recognizing the legitimacy of your disability claim, then I have zero hesitation challenging the insurers of this cynical approach in disability management. And one day they're going to get wise to that. Well, maybe not, <laughs> which is why you got to prey on them right away if they pull those uh, pull those type well, of maneuvers. And that's that's kind of what you're there for, right? Exactly, John. And I think that the courts are on the side of the claimants. That's the other thing that that judges have had very recent decisions where they've said the surveillance is just not that persuasive. I keep going back to that one um, where there was a jury finding of a million and a half damages where the disability insurer had done like hundreds of hours of surveillance. And, you know, I I could tell the jury was not persuaded and they actually slapped the wrist of the insurer for having done it. And I think that that approach more and more uh, is going to be uh, questioned. Uh, I think it should anyway, from the insurer's perspective and their tactics and their approaches to these disability claims. By the same token, let's not give them a reason to, to think about it otherwise. In other words, if there is fair um, description around your level of function and your disability, then I don't think that it allows the insurer that avenue to start to question what's otherwise a legitimate disability claim. I'm sort of re- repeating myself a little bit, but I think it is a really important point, John, that you know people, yes, I understand, have a, a natural degree of fear. Um, yes, the insurers will come at it with some cynicism, but when your doctors are clearly giving you advice that you shouldn't be working, regardless of the fact that you could do a load of laundry every three days, 
Um, you know, that that's not going to change the complexion of the fact that you can't do your job day in and day out. And that is absolutely a legitimate disability claim. And I think the insurers know it, John. I just think that they're grappling at different tools to try and respond to, you know, what is, you know, a mental health crisis that we've talked about the last number of years, you know, a crisis of not being able to access treatment for other physical health issues or getting, you know, surgeries and other things. We recognize that this is a uh, an issue that's going to persist for some time. And so insurers are going to get creative, right? And they're going to start to do some of the things that are more unsavory, I think. And I, I just want to give people the advice that, you know, there's nothing to fear when there's a legitimate disability claim in that scenario. It should absolutely be paid and compensated for. And if you've got any troubles whatsoever, we're just a phone call away. Yeah, you should absolutely uh, reach out to Tamara and her team. Seriously, one 821 5900 can be a confusing Confusing times for sure. So the phone call would be a good place to start. Help at disabilityrights.ca is also a good avenue for you. Email you can send anytime. Tomorrow and her team go through those emails. And sometimes, uh, you know, we might uh, we might get to one pop up on the show. We'll see. Uh, first one for today, as a matter of fact, Elise is, uh, is the first one up tomorrow. It says, my LTD disability company referred me to a rehab consultant for my disorder. Without my doctor's knowledge, they have put in place a plan for me to return to work, though I won't be mentally ready. Uh, I'm being forced to do therapy, even though I have my own treatment plan. Do I legally have to do this therapy? Good question, Elise. We we get different versions of this question quite a bit. And, and I think that it really does come down to what the policy for disability benefits says in Lisa's situation, John, because a lot of disability policies will have a section that says, if we as insurance company think that you need certain rehabilitation or certain type of treatment, we expect that you will get this treatment. We will put it in place. And if you don't participate, you don't get benefits. Okay. And so it can be a really tough scenario when you've got wording like that in the disability policy. You've got the insurer that's being quite bullish about imposing their plan upon you while you're still sort of thinking about, well, what if I can't participate? What if I don't participate? Then what happens? In situations like this, I think, you know, worst case scenario, of course, is that the benefits will get cut off if you don't participate. But I'd like to give Elise sort of a, a midway option, which is this. The fact that the rehab consultant put this plan in place without consulting with her own medical team, doctors, her own treatment plan, I think is a big disconnect. And if I'm Elise, I want to get that, that under the nose of the adjuster and say, hey, can we have a legitimate dialogue here between you guys and what you want to do and what I'm already doing with my own doctors um, and my own treatment providers. Because, you know, think about a physical disability, John, where, you know, the insurer may come up with some kind of a, you know, eight week work hardening progressive treatment plan, some such. In other words, multiple sessions of physiotherapy, occupational therapy, and so on with the sole goal of you returning back to work. And line that up with you having your own treatment. Maybe that is also weekly. Now you're basically going to a treatment provider, maybe three or four days out of five uh, to get treatment. It, it doesn't make sense, right? And in, and if you've got a physical health disability, it can actually wear you down and get you to a point where you're you're regressing. So I think having that communication between the two may make a lot of sense to alter the plan and make it in line with where she's at from a health perspective so that she's not being pressured to get back to work. 
With that, we will take a short break and get right back into it. Please send along those emails anytime. You can also go to mydisabilityquestions.com. Fantastic website, free and anonymous. It's also got a searchable database as well, so check that out. And the phone number to tomorrow anytime, one 855 We'll continue. Lots more Disability Law Show is coming right up. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back, Disability Law Show. So, uh, Jazz, you're joining us on the show today. I want to remind you that you can reach out anytime Tamara Gopian is where you want to head. Uh, she's got a great team, always willing to assist you. Uh, in fact, right across the country, outside of Quebec, you are good to go. The number one 855 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. And just before the break, I mentioned another website where you can ask questions. Use your uh, tablet, your uh, your smartphone, your computer, doesn't matter. MyDisabilityQuestions.com. From that, tomorrow we'll get to this one. It says, uh, what does the change of definition mean? Will I automatically be cut off or does my long-term disability company have to help me find a career? Do they possibly help with school? Thanks. So mydisabilityquestions.com is a really helpful tool for us because we really do go back to the basics of Disability 101. And a question like this about what's the change of definition uh, is really at the core of a lot of the work that we do. And frankly, the questions that we get asked very, very regularly. So uh, what does this mean? It is a definition change in your policy for you to continue getting long-term disability benefits. And it's done strategically by the insurer. So I'm going to get on my soapbox here for a little bit. But mm -hmm. essentially, it comes in play after two years of you getting benefits uh, or getting paid LTD. And so the insurer, just before that two-year mark is up, will take a more critical review of your disability claim. They'll look to see where you're at from a health perspective. And then they'll look at this definition, which is one that says, are you capable of doing any occupation? anything in the world for which you've got the minimum education, training, or experience that would allow you to go out and work and earn usually roughly what you're getting for your LTD benefit, give or take about two-thirds of what you're making before you became disabled. And the insurer will do this analysis in a bunch of different ways. Um, some insurers will actually have you assessed. Some insurers will do what's called a transferable skills analysis. So they'll look actually at you know, how far did you get in school? What kind of work were you doing before you got your current job? You know, that kind of thing. And they'll actually make some assumptions around what your current state of health is. In other words, do you have ongoing restrictions and limitations that need to be taken into consideration when they look at these alternative jobs? So for example, if you've got a physical disability, usually the fallback position for insurers is, look, you can sit for eight hours and answer phones and, and you should be fine. We're not going to put you back in that physical job that you were doing before you became unwell. But all of that has to line up. In other words, the stars must align with not only having sufficient health status in order to do these alternative jobs, but sufficient assumptions around what your background education training is. And the fact that you know, you could sustain it at a commensurate level. In other words, at a level of earnings that makes sense with what the policy says. Because some disability policies will say, if you can go out and earn 50% of what you were making before, we don't have to pay you LTD. Okay. I've seen some policies have that low of a threshold for alternative work. And this is why I'm saying this is a harder te test to meet. Insurers have drafted these policies intentionally so that they can shake people off claim after a couple of years and force people to make some hard choices around their health and employability. Not fair, not right. And 
it's a breeding ground, I can tell you, of issues for disability insurers. And so people will get these letters, John, that say, you know, you've been declined past your change of definition. You don't qualify beyond two years. And some people interpret that to mean that that's the end of the line. And I can tell you, it absolutely is not the end of the line because most of these disability policies, not only entirely to benefits potentially till you turn 65 years old, but I'm telling you that a lot of the time there's assumptions that are made inherent in that decision that the, the disability insurer has made that's wrong, that's just simply incorrect. Time and time again, I see transferable skills analysis that are not done correctly, um, improper assumptions on the restrictions limitations, improper assumptions on what's a direct entry job. In other words, a job that you can do where you can land yourself that job tomorrow with the, the resume that you have right now. And I think embedded in this question from mydisabilityquestions.com was that issue. Does the insurance company actually have to help me find another career? You know, what do they have? What are their obligations in terms of schooling and education? And the policies, of course, are unusually silent about this, John. They don't talk about that part of it. Look, I shouldn't say that. I've seen maybe one or two that have a section, vocational section that says, look, we'll contribute a few thousand bucks towards education if you need it. Um, but that's rare. And those that language is being done away with as more and more iterations of these policies come up. Because, of course, insurers don't want to pay these additional dollars and they're going to resist that. So what I mean by direct entry is this. The insurer actually has to figure out whether you've got enough minimum qualifications to do a totally different job than the one that you were doing. And if you don't, there is some law around the fact that there's a period of time that you will need to get that training, get that support in order for you to, to get into a job like that. When you don't have to do that, that's considered direct entry. When you do need training, then that has to be acknowledged in the transferable skills analysis and somewhere in the insurance company's decision making. So people get this notion that the insurer can cut them off and, uh, you know, throw them out into the workforce and that'll be that. Maybe. Or perhaps the underpinnings of what they've said to you is not correct. And in fact, they should have supported some additional period of time to allow you to get that training. So they don't have to necessarily pay you. But in my view, if there's a runoff period where you can't get a job tomorrow with your current skill set, then there should be an ongoing support of total disability um, benefits to be paid on an ongoing basis to allow you a fighting chance to actually find yourself this other magical job that they say that you can do. So it is a straightforward analysis in the sense that, you know, very few people who are cut off at the change of definition go from being able to not work to work. In other words, I think there is a good basis to challenge most disability insurers at this change of definition point. And we see lots and lots of people come to us in that point in time. But I also think that it can be a bit more nuanced than that. And so I want to share with um, our listeners, I, I'm actually working uh, with a client right now who has a bit more of a nuanced analysis like this. And the nuance is this. Um, she has worked in a physical job all her life, 25 years, same physical labor oriented work. And now she's got chronic back pain. And so it is inevitable that, and she's got limited education, training, and experience. In other words, she didn't get very far in school and, you know, her job prospects are relatively low unless she actually goes back to school and gets further education and then puts herself in a different work setting. But the insurer didn't want to wait for all of that. And of course, denied her benefits at the change of definition. And so 
we've had a lot of discussions around, look, should she be embarking on these educational pursuits now? Should she put them off? Is she going to be compensated for that? What does that look like? And as I said, right from the start, I don't think it's right for insurers to just simply cut off claims when they've got a profile like this. And so it's nuanced. It's a really good you know, jumping off point for us to have lots of discussions with potential clients as to what we can do um, and having options going forward. And in this particular client situation, we start a legal claim and we're having discussions with the insurer about resolution. And this is the core of the issue. And I suspect that the insurer will see it like I see it, which is that it's not a uh, necessarily a overnight that this individual could have gone from working to not working, which is what they suggested. And that was the basis of the denial. Just want to get you off claim. Just want to get you back to work so they can they can scrub off another file, right? Just want to get to uh to Lillian sent an email and says, Hey Tamara, I've been receiving short-term disability for an ongoing mental health issue. My doctors believe I'm still not ready to return to work and my mental health would uh re- regress if I did. If I apply for LTD, is an approval automatic? Mm-hmm. Really good question. So not necessarily Lillian. So I don't want individuals who are getting short-term disability to think that they automatically get long-term. Let's unpack this a bit. Some employers have one company or administrator or maybe even an insurer who looks at the short-term claims and makes decisions around whether or not someone meets the test of disability in the short-term disability policy or realm or timeframe. And that timeframe is usually about let's say four months, 17 weeks, or up to maybe 26 weeks. Then they have another insurer, maybe the same insurer, but certainly another realm where you have to actually apply for long-term disability benefits in order to be entitled for LTD. And if you're Lillian, you want to know whether you have to make that process and initiate that process and make that application because there's narrow windows of periods of time in which people can apply for long-term And if you're in a situation where there isn't going to be that continuity, where the insurer is expecting you to make a separate application, maybe it's a totally different company entirely, you want to know that. And your employer actually has the answer to that question, but you've got to ask it sometimes before you find out whether you're in that category. So I think for Lillian, that's what I want to understand right away is, you know, is it the same player? Is it the same insurer? You know, maybe if it is the same insurer, she can just send an email saying, look, do you need a full... LTD application, what's going to happen, you know, as I'm transitioning from short term to long term, and get some kind of written response from the insurer about your long term claim. Because if they're expecting you to apply, you better know that now and actually make that application so that you preserve your rights to those benefits. The thing, though, is, is that the heart of it is, John, that the definition is actually the same. (laughs) This is the other thing. The definition for disability for short term and long term, at least for that initial phase of the long-term benefits is absolutely the same. So theoretically, if the medical issues are supported, if Lillian is saying, look, her doctors are saying that as a result of her mental health conditions, she cannot work right now, then in theory, if she's approved and paid short-term, she should absolutely be approved and paid for long-term. But as I described, sometimes long-term is paid by a totally different company. Sometimes it's the same insurer who's looking at the short-term And they might start to become the gatekeeper of the long term. Here's why. If they administer the short term, John, they're going to give advice to the employer like, look, this person is totally disabled. Then the employer actually cuts the check for the disability benefit. But when it transitions to long term, same insurer, 
It's now the insurance company's money. And so I can tell you that they are going to resist that transition if they can, because they don't want you on claim. They don't want to have to pay that that uh, monthly benefit. They're happy to adjudicate your claim on behalf of the employer because the employer is paying them to do these services and to, you know they remit premiums on your behalf for the short-term claim. But when it comes down to long-term, you can get a bit of that resistance, even though you shouldn't, even though in theory, if your medical is there supporting that you can't work, you should have a seamless transition from short-term to long-term. But it is not often automatic. And you want to make sure that you're staying on top of it so that you have a very clear understanding where you need to go. Do you need to put in more paperwork? Who does it go to so that you don't have that interruption of benefits going from short term to long term? And with that, we hope that uh, helped out Lillian for sure. If, uh, if a disability claimant gets a medical report that's not supportive, we'll say that. Is it worth getting a second opinion from another doctor or will that look bad to the insurance company? Or do we care if it looks bad to the insurance company? Yeah, I don't know if I care, John. I mean, I don't know if I care about the insurer, frankly, because I think that when you're going through um, this process with a disability insurer, the number one priority is your own health. So if you think that your health requires you to further investigate what's happening, then I don't really have a lot of hesitation suggesting to people, yeah, go get a second opinion. Um, but have that discussion with your primary treating doctor, with your family doctor. That This is not really a legal question per se. It's kind of more of a medical one to some extent because I really do think that the disability insurer's part of it is secondary to what's happening with your health and making sure that you're getting the right treatment, making sure that you have the right people at the table who are advising you about what to do with your health. Now, do insurers look at second opinions perhaps critically? And this goes back to what I was saying at the top of the show about some cynicism with adjusters and, and insurers about their approach on these kinds of things. Sure. Mm -hmm. But if a second opinion is going to give you further, further insight on your disability claim, and that's the opinion you need to support that you need further treatment and not return back to work, then it's a valid report. It's a valid opinion. And you're absolutely fair to follow that opinion if the first one said you're fine and you're good to go and you should be returning back to work. The greatest risk you run is for the insurer to make the poor decision of either cutting you off or not approving the claim in the first place by virtue of the fact that you've got these two medical opinions. Frankly, they can get their own medical consultant to review it as well. Um, but at the end of the day, you should be following your own medical advice. And if you're getting resistance from your own insurer because there's two medical opinions, I don't think that that meets the smell test. In other words, I don't think that's going to be enough for them to stand up before a judge and say, yeah, you're not totally disabled when a doctor has given that clear opinion that you are and therefore should be entitled to your benefits. And with that, we'll break. George, I see your uh, email standing by. We'll get to you very shortly. You can always send one along, maybe not for the show. It'll get answered at another time when we're not doing this program. How do you do it? Uh, you send it to help at disabilityrights.ca. The phone number to tomorrow and company, easy, one 821 5,900, and for quick, easy-to-read, non-legalese memos about LTD, a number of topics, most things covered right here at ltdfaq.ca. Use that as well. We'll return after a short break right here on the Disability Law Show. Yes, we are back. Thank you. Disability Law Show. So good to have you on. John Scholes here, and again, Tamara Gopian from San Firu to Market LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Do not hesitate if you're uh, scratching your head about something to do with a long-term disability insurer. Maybe you've been cut off. Maybe they haven't uh, decided to take on your claim. Maybe you've been asked to appeal. They love doing that. Don't jump into those waters until you at least make that phone call and have a chat with Tamar 
and her team will cost you nothing just to pick up a phone, right? one 855 help at disabilityrights.ca. George, thank you so much, pal. We're going to get to your email now. George sent this over. says, guys, I suffered a mental breakdown last year due to my boss and uh, all the extra work and stress I had at work. I had some trouble getting my short-term benefits approved, but once I did, I managed to transition to long-term. With the support of my family doctor and psychologist, I've been on a gradual return to work plan for the past few months. I was getting paid for LTD and my salary, but before I was able to get full-time, I was fired. This triggered me all over again, and I'm back to a massive depression and anxiety. My doctors advise the insurance company of this, but the insurer is refusing my LTD claim what do I do now? Oh, George, I'm sorry to hear that. Look, really, really tough spot because what he's describing is that he's got a supported disability claim while he's returning back to work and gradually getting up to the to place where he could hopefully work full time. And then in the midst of that, uh, his employer has made the poor decision of terminating his employment. Yeah, so look, dumb. I think that this type of email, John, really highlights the expertise that we have at our firm both on the disability side and the employment side. The intersections between these two areas of law come up so frequently. And myself, along with a few members of our team, actually specialize in both areas. And so the lens here is disability. And so I'm going to focus a little bit more on that part of it, George, because we've got a whole other show on employment. But on the on the disability side, I want George to be mindful of the fact that there are recurrence provisions in the disability policy. This is exactly the situation that it's meant to respond to. The policy itself, the disability policy, will have a provision that says if your health prevents you from fully returning back to work or returning back to work in a, on a sustainable basis for a period typically beyond six months, then you can access disability benefits again. You can send us further medical, and theoretically, we should start your benefits right back up again on the basis of medical support that you are still totally disabled. And if in that window of time you're not successful, then we're going to start paying you LTD. But insurers don't like this provision, John, because once they've got you back to work, they pay you less, and the hope is that they're going to be able to close out your claim at a certain point in time. And these recurrence claims and these uh, revisiting of disability obviously cost the insurers a lot of money. And this is the time where they like to resist it. And so I think that's what's happening, unfortunately, with George. It certainly seems like a very legitimate triggering of further mental health conditions by virtue of a termination, not an uncommon experience. And, you know, I think what I'm more frustrated by is that he's got a mental health specialist, the psychologist, and the family doctor both supporting that he's not capable of working, regardless of what's happening with his termination. In other words, even if he could work right now, he he can't. And he should absolutely be getting his disability benefits in a situation like this. But this is one where I think that a legal claim makes sense. And here's why, John, because it is technical, right? Amongst everything else, I think there's a technical component here. There's a component here that maybe the insurer is aligning with the employer. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, look, I don't want to suggest conspiracy theories, but you can bet that the employer and the insurer have had conversations about what's happening with George and his return to work. And maybe he wasn't returning fast enough. Maybe he wasn't taking on as much work as he should have. Who knows what the dialogue is? But then it can't be that they close the door on employment and also close the door on disability. 
where does that leave George? And and I don't like that. I think that it smells bad. In other words, I don't think that, you know, the courts are going to agree with what they've done here, either the employer or the disability insurer. But the first answer in a situation like this is the disability insurer, because the disability is front and center. The health issues have reemerged, and that is the answer. He should be getting his disability benefits again, kicked right back up. No waiting period, none of that. He should be continuing on getting that claim paid. And as a secondary, then we revisit what's happening with the employer. And, you know, issues of human rights come to mind. Issues of failing to accommodate come to mind, John. And so, you know, I think that in a deeper dive, there is potentially a basis for a claim here, not only against the disability insurer, but the employer as well. And so the main things here, the takeaways here are that provided that you've got the the mental health support uh, and you've got these these reports over to the insurer saying, look, there's a legitimate disability claim here, then in my mind, that's full stop. Disability benefits should be paid. But also, bear in mind that if you're George, if you come into some dollars, some severance dollars, for example, which he will, regardless of what he does with his employer, he yep. will receive some element of severance under the law. There's protections on that. And the disability insurer will be aware of it. And most disability policies say, we'll pay you the LTD benefit, but if you come into certain sources of income, sometimes including severance, we get a credit for that. So there are some layers to this. And one of those layers is being mindful of the fact that, yes, you should be pursuing the long-term disability insurer and knowing and recognizing, though, that that severance could be a credit against what you may be owed from the long-term disability insurer. So again, talk to the experts. Please give us a call. I actually think I'm going to give George a call after our, our show, John, just to have a deeper mm-hmm. conversation with him about his option. But I do think that there's an excellent basis here for not only a claim against the disability insurer, but also the employer. And with that, we'll take a short break. And more of your questions and emails, Sheila, I see you there. Stand by. We will get to yours if you want to send along along uh, any time. Uh, you can do so. How do you do it? You go to help at disabilityrights.ca and you can always reach out by phone to Tamar and her team, don't hesitate to do that, 1-855-821-5900. This is the Disability Law Show. We're taking a short break, coming back with more. Hang on. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. If you've been hanging out for the last hour, we really appreciate the next step. If uh, you need to for either yourself, possibly a family member, colleague, or a friend, is to reach out to Tamar at the firm and discuss your matter. Sometimes these things can be lengthy, a little dicey. And uh, you might be a little gun shy to come on air with it, but that's okay. You can always do it uh, in the background with Tamar and her team. one 821 5900 No pressure there. And then help at disabilityrights.ca. Sheila has offered up her email, though. She says, guys, I work in the medical industry and have been off work for a year because of an injury to my back. I applied for LTD shortly after going on leave, but was denied by the insurance company. I just sent in my second appeal, but I'm worried I will be denied again. I've already been off uh, work with no income for a year. My doctor has told me that my injury is too severe to return to work yet. How can I get the insurance company to approve me? All tomorrow. Sheila. Don't appeal, Sheila. Start yes. a legal claim. That's how yeah. you get that's how you get it done. Okay. This this is this is so frustrating, John, to to hear this, but I but I understand. Sheila is like, look, what more can I do here? And what you can do is actually put the pressure back on the insurer to recognize what is an absolutely legitimate disability claim. And we do this really effectively, John, and and we do it effectively in the sense that sometimes it takes only a matter of months, months 
to get a resolution for our claimants. And in that time, sometimes it's sooner than the time that it has taken them to appeal and appeal again. And that is where the source of my frustration is, is that it's so tempting to just, okay, let me just do another medical report or let me just do this other thing. And I'm sure this is now going to finally convince the insurance company that I should be paid benefits. And I can assure you, Sheila, that you're not getting a fair shake here, unfortunately. Typically, this appeal. So so let's talk about the appeals, John. Yeah. As you know, yeah, typically it's the same person who's looking at the same medical information making the same decision. Okay. And it's it's just it's human nature. They're not going to change their mind. You know, they've made a decision to to deny or cut off. Um, and it's very difficult to persuade someone once they've made a decision to change their mind. And then that's usually what's called the first level of appeal. But there's many levels, there's sometimes three levels, sometimes more than that. And the levels are done intentionally because at each level, you're spending more time and energy and sometimes your own money to get medical reports over to the insurance company to persuade them to approve your benefits. And in that time, what they're doing is they're biding time. That's what the insurance company is doing. They're gaining the time that it's going to take you to, to run around and do this and perhaps get to such a point where you're either so desperate that you're going to give up or you're so desperate that you're going to go back to work, you know, against medical advice, or you're just not going to do anything more about it and leave well enough alone and walk away. And that's what they're banking on. This is why they have two, three, four levels of appeals. This is why they don't necessarily um, give you a fair shape because they're not transparent about who's looking at it. What's the review? Is it criteria? There isn't even a time frame, John, for them to respond to you on your appeal. Would you would you believe that? There's nothing in the policy yeah. about this. There's no internal policies, documents, rec- nothing. They're just, yeah, we'll get back to you. And, you know, by the way, this is some arbitrary deadline. You've got 90 days to appeal. And people get very worried. Oh, it's 90 days tomorrow. I got to, you know, do it. No, where's the 90 days? They're just making it up because then the adjuster after day 91, they're just going to close the claim. And it's just like, okay, your claim is closed. We're not going to adjudicate. We're done. They'll let your employer know we're done. And that's that. And so if you're Sheila, you know, can you imagine what, what she must have already been going through, John, through all of this, and that she's been off work for so long that she's got such a severe back condition that the doctor's saying, uh-uh, you're not working. No. And in the midst of all that, she has to still deal with the disability insurer. Sheila, make it my problem. My team, James, it doesn't matter who it is who's dealing with your disability claim. This is what we do day in and day out. And we do it really effectively because I can tell you that once that claim is issued, I start a legal claim. I don't don't go through appeals, John. I'm not going to do that. I start the legal claim. There's a lawyer assigned. And as soon as that lawyer is assigned, and it's probably someone I've dealt with before, I get on the horn or I send an email and I say, hey, are we going to resolve this claim? What are you guys doing with this claim? And a lot of the time, yeah, yeah, tomorrow, yeah, no, we're going to talk about resolution. Let's do a mediation. Let's maybe do direct negotiations. And so after sometimes years of resistance from the insurer themselves, all of a sudden our involvement gets the result. Because I can tell you their lawyer knows what I know, which is if you've got supportive medical that you can't work, you should absolutely be getting your disability benefits, full stop. And it's not a defensible position for the insurance company to continue to refuse the claim. And with time, it doesn't sound like it's getting better. And actually, the optics look even worse for the insurer. So 
the most efficient route, really, in my mind, is pursuing a legal claim. And it alleviates the pressure of having to prove again and again to the insurance company, look, I am disabled. No, 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 I am really disabled. People, I'm disabled. They don't care. They don't care, John, because if they've got one measure of a way to deny your claim, they're going to maintain that denial because they're not issuing that disability benefit. They're taking in premiums and not paying out otherwise legitimate claims. That's the racket. I get it. It's profit driven, but let's keep them honest. Let's at least help people like Sheila to pursue their rights, their owed compensation. And with a back injury, you don't know what the outcome is going to be after treatment. Is she going to be able enough to do alternative work? Is she able enough to go back to her original job? I mean, these are real legitimate questions. And we can have these conversations when we're involved with their lawyer, not an adjuster, not someone low level, you know, who doesn't really understand the whole framework, doesn't understand the law, someone who gets it, uh, who will assess the risks like we assess the risks and really think about what is the appropriate level of compensation for someone like Sheila. Let me ask you this question before we uh, before we roll out of here, uh, tomorrow. Yeah. Can the long-term disability insurer force someone to take medication? We know about forcing to go to assessments. Yeah. Uh, they have threatened to cut them off, or or uh, or I do not. That's what our question is. Can they take yeah. me? Can they cut me off? Yeah. Yeah. No. No. They can't force you to take medication. Obviously, it's your body, your choice, right? Um, and maybe that's a little trite for me to say, John, at the end of our show, but it's absolutely true. But here's the thing. You know, medication is seen by insurers like treatment, quote unquote. And like we talked about with rehab and other things, sometimes adjusters think that that means that they can actually say, look, you should be taking opioids, for example, or other strong pain medications so that you can go and work. They're not looking at the long term. They're just looking at the short term. And that's not in your best interest of your health. And so if you're in that situation, you want to make sure that your doctors are clearly articulating what's in the best interest of your health. And if they agree that this medication isn't the answer, or perhaps it's not the answer in the long term, that should be clearly communicated in a medical report, put that over to the insurer. And if they decide to make the poor decision to cut off your claim, give me a call. There's an absolutely valid basis to challenge the insurer in a situation like that, because they cannot force you to do certain treatment that may harm you. And I think that's the biggest concern with this idea of they can force you to take medication. They can't. And with that, we are done. Thank you so much for your contributions to the show again this week. You continue reaching out and maybe your question will appear on a future show. If not, tomorrow's team always there to answer it and get back to you uh, quickly as well. one 821 5900 is how you do that. It's help at disabilityrights.ca. And for any other questions can be asked anonymously, by the way, with a searchable database. So maybe your question is already up there. You can just read it and get the information for uh, for little effort. Mydisabilityquestions.com. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.